The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. Check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. The Remedial History Project is funded through grants and by listeners like you. Please head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial History Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. In particular, funds from patrons added from here on out will help us launch a crash course YouTube channel on women's history. We will be producing short 10-minute videos that educators can play in their classes telling women's history from era to era for both U.S. and world history. Let's make history together. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be talking about Anne Boleyn's daughter, the longest reigning monarch in English history at the time that she was a monarch, Elizabeth I. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we are going to be asking the question, is Elizabeth I a turning point in world history? In a lot of ways, the answer to this is clear. And I think that this is an example where in history classes, we can centralize women. Now, Queen Elizabeth is significant in world history. She's one of the only women who has an era of world history named after her. So that makes her very significant. But she's a turning point, right? They, they designate an era to her. But Beyond that era designation, she is sort of a demarcation point for modern world history. She is a turning point in English superiority. Her conflicts with Spain and the defeat of the Spanish Armada are also major turning points in world history. But I wonder, and what I'm hoping our guest will help us discover is how might her reign also be a turning point in English history? How might her example as a woman be a turning point in how other women lead in the future, like Queen Victoria, for example? This is a question that our podcast episode today will begin to answer, and probably your own investigations beyond this and with students could elaborate and help you really answer the many ways arguably, Queen Elizabeth I is a turning point. Um, There's also some ways in which she's pretty consistent in terms of her engagement in the Protestant-Catholic conflicts that dominate English history. So this week on the podcast, I am so excited to have a guest with us, Deb Hunter. She's a Tennessean. She is a scholar of Tudor history, and she runs all Things Tudor, a wonderful blog and uh, community space for Tudor fans to meet and connect. And she actually reached out to us and said, you've got to do something on Elizabeth I. And so without further ado, I'd love for Deb to introduce herself to everyone. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter. I'm a USA Today bestselling author and historian from Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm also the owner of All Things Tudor, 
which is my passion. So thank you for having me today. I am so excited to have you today. (laughs) So um, you are from Tennessee, and I'm just curious how a Tennessean lady got interested in Tudor history. It's one of those things that just happened. I had a very good female history teacher who involved me at a very young age, starting at the age of 12. She got me interested in the Tudor simply because with Mary Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots, it, it was basically the age of queens. And she knew a curious girl that was involved in history would want to know more about female queens and females being in charge. So that's how it all came about. One one good history teacher that was a female. Women are just the best. <laughs> we really rule the world and I can't figure out why no one knows that yet. <laughs> so our audience has learned a little bit about Queen Elizabeth's mother, but we are going to talk uh, in depth today about Queen Elizabeth. And our audience does know that Anne Boleyn, her mother, was beheaded by her father, which is just, you know, I think about some of the challenges that students, uh, that young people have when their parents get divorced and deal with separation and all these things. I don't know how a human wraps their mind around dad killed mom (laughs) and it was totally legal. (laughs) Um, So Elizabeth is just fascinating to me in her ability to thrive despite trauma. And so I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, she was young, she was two when her mother was beheaded. So how did she feel about her mother? How did she feel about this whole dynamic that she is coming into the world with? It's, it's interesting you ask that, and I appreciate that. She was extremely young. She wasn't even three years old. So the chances are she did not remember it. However, she did notice that she went from being Princess Elizabeth to Lady Elizabeth. And she did have questions about that when she was younger. And there were problems getting her household paid for. And she knew instinctively that she had been removed from the line of secession, as we would call it, that she was considered a royal bastard. So that had to affect her. Absolutely. In Later in life, does she mention her mother or anything about her mom's legacy? She appears to have made mention of her mother more symbolically. I found reference to two quotes she made about Anne, but I can't find the actual documentation, which is always so important. You know, hearsay is one thing, documentation is another. But she, when she died, the checkers ring, and that's C-H-E-Q-U-E-R-S, had a picture of her and a woman on it. And that woman is considered to be Anne Boleyn. And she wore that her entire life. And there's been some discussion that it's her and Catherine Parr, who was Henry VIII's last wife, and had a a huge influence on Elizabeth's education. But there's also a phoenix on the ring, and the phoenix was one of the Boleyn family mottos, one of their, as we would call them today, logos, part of their brand. Mm -hmm. And that leads a lot of art historians and historians to believe that Elizabeth wore this picture, this ring that had a picture of her and her mother her entire life. So it seems based on your answer, and correct me if I'm reading into this incorrectly, that what I would think would be 
traumatic, maybe because she was so young, maybe wasn't traumatic. It just sort of like was the way it was. Mom was dead and we moved forward. And whatever she felt was either kept close to her chest or not, uh, the documentation did not survive the Elizabethan period. She had a very traumatic childhood. That's the best way to put it. You have to think first her mother was executed. Then Henry's next wife died. She had Anne of Cleves come along next, who Henry was only married to for six months. Then Catherine Howard was executed. So her upbringing was definitely not normal. So that was just kind of the start of her life. And at one point, her sister Mary had her imprisoned in the tower. She was actually in the tower on the anniversary of her mother's execution, which was May 19th. We have to think how extremely traumatic this was on a young girl in her early 20s Mm. who knew that at the whim of her own half-sister, she might be executed. Mm -hmm. So she did not have a normal childhood by any stretch of the imagination. But it seems like she took all that trauma and it made her a very political being, a very political creature. She used all these bad situations. She made the best of everything. Mm-hmm. How involved were her various stepmothers in her actual upbringing? Or did she have a consistent like governess or something with her? She had actually two governesses. One was Lady Brian. The second one was Cat Ashley that stayed with her for the rest of her life. Her stabling influence as a stepmother was Henry's last wife, who was Catherine Park. Catherine was literally the first woman to have a book published Hmm. in English history. So that is something. And, of course, Elizabeth is known to have written translations and sent them to Catherine for gifts. So she was a very gifted child with languages and translations. And it would seem that Catherine Parr had a huge influence on her education. And she was very, very well educated. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, she was kept pretty separate from her half-sister and her half-brother, right, in, growing up? Really, she was fairly close to, they all had their households. Mm-hmm. They all had their own working households that took care of them. But she was so close in age to Edward VI, and they did have the same teachers. So they, they were very, very close emotionally because they were the same age, and they were brought up in the same religion. Her half-sister, Mary, who went on to become Mary first, was 17 years older than her, had different religions. Of course, someone 17 years older than you when you're a teenager is a huge difference. So they didn't really have that much in common, but she and Edward did. So King Henry VIII dies for... A short while, his only surviving son, the third born child, um, becomes king. And then he dies from an illness. Jane Grey becomes queen for nine days, is executed because she won't give up her faith. Um, I've had a lot of students who are passionate about their religion use her as a research project because she's a fascinating character in religious history. And so she's executed by Mary when Mary comes in. What is um, 
what is the what is Elizabeth's life like when her sister Mary is queen? She's on tenderhooks because depending on what Mary decides to do, again, Mary at one point had her imprisoned in the tower following Wyatt's rebellion because Mary's people, Mary's counselors, believed that Elizabeth was involved. Mm. So she, as we would say now, she walked on eggshells Mm -hmm. the entire time Mary was queen because she never knew if, if Mary did have a child Elizabeth would be completely removed from the line of secession. If something happened and Mary was gone, Elizabeth would be queen. So it had to be a very stressful, traumatic time for her. So Mary dies from cancer. Is that correct? I think that would be a good guess. Okay. What we know today, she had some false pregnancies. So more than likely, that was some form of cancer. Okay. Um, When I traveled and studied in England as an undergraduate, um, I learned that Mary gets nicknamed Bloody Mary, but actually Elizabeth killed more people when she came into power, killed more Catholics when she came into power than Mary had. So both of these women are part of sort of the tumultuous Catholic, Protestant, sort of constant, what I see as an American, like chaotic religious turmoil of the Reformation. Elizabeth comes to power. And what is that like? Like, what do you have any insights into what that's like for her as she's, you know, her sister dies and she's sort of been in hiding and in, uh, you know, walking on eggshells, like you said, is this like her moment? Like, does she feel that or is she still very hesitant at this point? She was very thankful, which, you know, today we're told to be very gracious, have gratitude when they She had been told it looked like it was the end. But of course, it was treason to predict the death of a a sovereign. So she, again, had to walk on eggshells. But when she was told at Hatfield House that she was to be queen, she basically offered up a prayer of thanks right in front of everyone and said it was God's will which, of course, that's what they believed in, mm-hmm. and that she would would rule for the body politic, mm-hmm. which is interesting because that, if you want to boil it down, that means that she looked to the people to help her rule. Mm-hmm. She felt she, it's kind of complicated, not all of a sudden I'm queen, everybody's going to do what I say, but that shows the kind of monarch she was going to become. Mm. So she makes a pretty interesting choice that Queen Victoria will later emulate, which is she doesn't get married. And and she's young when she comes to the throne. Um, she certainly could have gotten married. She's probably the most eligible bachelorette in Europe at this point. Um, so why does she make that choice? What is advantageous about that? There are certainly monarchs in other nations in Europe who get married and are able to keep their power. So um, Maria Theresa comes to mind. Um, so why does she choose not to get married? You have to wonder about that. And that's that's the big mystery, isn't it? She, um, of course, there again, she saw her father and all of her stepmothers. She saw Mary, Mary, a foreigner, as he was considered a Spanish foreigner, Philip II. That didn't work very well for Mary. She somehow knew to play the game, the marriage game, that she could keep her power. And and I love the way that she 
played men. To me, she's a very important role model because she never obligated herself to a man. If a man was in Elizabeth's life, it's because she wanted him there. And I think that's so important for us today. She, If she wanted to pretend she was interested in a foreign prince, it's because she was interested. She might answer their letters, but she played the game so incredibly well. And I, I think that's one thing she got from her mother, that she learned the art of courtly love. From and Anne Boleyn was known to play that, and and Elizabeth played it out on a grander scale. So she does have relationships with a couple people, or at least rumored relationships, or things like that. One of the people is Dudley. Could you tell us a little bit about what we know about this relationship? They grew up together. They had a lot of the same teachers. They knew each other for a lifetime. It's very easy to get attached to someone that has been loyal to you through all the trauma Elizabeth went to. And it's like someone in my group said, he had to be the best looking man at court. (laughs) So, you know, that, that will always influence you. So I believe he was always there for her and she knew she could depend on him. And to Elizabeth, after the trauma of her childhood, her teens, and her young adult years, knowing that someone was loyal to her, no matter what, meant everything. So I guess I'm curious, like, what is no, like, what, what, are, when we say there was a relationship there, what do we mean by that? What, what, what went on between them other than being good friends and whatever? We will never really know. Okay. I mean, you have both, both sides, one yelling, she, was surrounded by courtiers all the time. She could never have been alone with someone. The other side's yelling, how could you be that close to someone and and not be that close to someone? I personally don't know if she would have risked her throne because by marrying Dudley or having a relationship with him, she would have angered her counselors. Mm-hmm. So again, she was primarily a politician as well as a monarch. So, and and of course, that's what we want to believe. But we have to think it's a different world. And women had a lot to lose for having relationships outside of marriage. So would she want to run the risk of losing a kingdom just for that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because women, women can have friends without having sex with them. Really? Yeah. <laughs> And I know that shocks quite quite a few people, but it is completely possible. That is mind-boggling information. Isn't it? I'm always shocked at people like, you can't be that close. And and yes, you can. (laughs) So someone who doesn't have friends. Um, Uh, he also has a relationship with Essex, and um, this is this is another rumored, you know, relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? Well, Elizabeth apparently had a thing about tall, good-looking, charming men, but you know, really, who doesn't? <laughs> so, so here comes Essex. Elizabeth is older. He's dashing. He's charming. He's impetuous. He's everything Elizabeth loves. Probably reminds her a lot of Dudley. But he makes a lot of mistakes in Ireland that have really marred her her rule. But I think that was her last play at youth and beauty. So when she had Essex executed in a way, 
it was the death of her, her cult in her mind, because he stood for, for what she once had when she was young and could really play the game. So I, I think Essex affected her a lot more than we give the real credit for, because he fed her ego. And that's very important when you're a monarch that's that strong, having someone that will support you in that way. I heard a rumor that, or rather, I heard that there were rumors that she got pregnant at different points and may have aborted those babies or lost those babies or something like that. First of all, which guy are we talking about when those rumors are in, in existence? And and then I guess, secondly, is there any validity to any of those rumors or are they just gossip, court gossip? Well, again, we have to take the source. And there was a young man who washed up on the shore in Spain and said he was the child of Dudley and Elizabeth. And he gave them all this information that seemed to be true, but even the Spanish decided it wasn't true and they were looking for anything to undermine Elizabeth. So I think you have to look at the sources and the documentation. Was it written from a Catholic point of view? Was it written from a Protestant point of view? You have to look through that and dig through it and you have to glean what you see. And again, based on what I've I've read and a lot of academics, they just feel like these are rumors that were trying to destroy Elizabeth. Right. Because when Henry divorces Catherine of Aragon, the Spanish are not thrilled. The Pope is not thrilled. This is like England is heathens. And the fact that Elizabeth is this Protestant queen of England, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, nonetheless, right? So that's kind of interesting that the Catholic Spanish, who have every reason to dislike Elizabeth I, don't even buy into that rumor. Exactly. Um, okay, that that puts a lot of like weight sort of against those rumors. All right. And that seems to be a pattern in, in English history, people showing up with claims you know, against the throne in various ways that kind of make no sense. Dead people who like somehow come back to life and, you know. It's true. That's so true. And you have to take into account too, Elizabeth was a female. So they wanted to do anything to discredit her, get rid of her, stain her reputation. And they, they would say anything. So tell me a little bit about her reign. She, I mean, this is a, this is an era of world history, the Elizabethan era that is named after her. So it is clearly a high point in English history. It leads to the rise of the English empire that we know from world history. So tell me a little bit about her reign and what made her such an incredible monarch, despite the fact that people wanted to take her down. Well, she was everything that you're about. She was a monarch, she was an empress, she was a politician, and she was a woman. She took a very, again, a very traumatic upbringing and a very small kingdom, and and she was threatened internally and externally, but her own blend of shrewdness, courage, and majestic self-display inspired loyalty in her people, and it helped unify England against their foreign enemies. And the adulation of her people, which is something that she openly courted, another thing she courted, it bestowed upon her a lifetime and still her legacy lives on with us today. And it was carefully crafted by her. You know, the Tudors were known for what today we would call branding. They were very into the pageantry. They were into the symbols. They were into 
how to make themselves immortal, basically. And Elizabeth did that. And she took a political symbolism, which, of course, had a, a lot of weight for that era. And she turned herself into a figurehead. She upheld authority and made critical decisions and set central policies in her country for the church and the state. And in the latter half of the the 16th century, it is called the Elizabethan age, just like you said. And it's an entire era distinctively stamped by a female ruler. We And it's the start of our early modern studies today. So she has left a lasting impression, which, which is remarkable for a woman 500 years ago. I think it was best put by Pope Sixtus V. She's only a woman, only mistress of half an island. And Yet she makes herself feared by all. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't it? There are other people who have claims to the throne. One of them is her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. Is that correct that they're cousins? That's correct. Mary's up in Scotland. And actually, there's a great film that just came out about these two women and their rivalry. But I'm curious about this relationship. And this is a kind of an interesting, there are assassination attempts. This is like, you know, this makes this makes great film um, and great narrative. So tell me a little bit about this relationship with her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, who's ruling just to the north of her. It, it's really like you say, you you can't make things like this up. Mary became queen only a few days after she was born, she was the Queen of France for a while. She had everything basically handed to her on a silver platter. Unlike Elizabeth, she followed her heart and she made some very impetuous mistakes, which she ended up paying for with her life. She she firmly believed that she was the, the actual Queen of England. That didn't go over real well. And because of Elizabeth's stake in England... There, there was a spy network developed because there were so many plots against Elizabeth's life that actually the M- MI6 today is descended from the spy network set up during the Elizabethan age. So Mary and Elizabeth had a very tempestuous relationship. I think they admired each other from afar. I know Elizabeth would ask courtiers if they thought she was more beautiful than Mary because Mary was supposedly the most beautiful woman of the time. And Elizabeth didn't like that. Elizabeth wanted to be the most beautiful woman of the era. That was a good way to stay in Elizabeth's good graces was to tell her that she was more beautiful than Mary. So it, it was personal. They were relatives, but they were very wary of each other. How does she eventually catch Mary? And Mary's beheaded at Elizabeth's request after being imprisoned for a very long time. How does that come about? Mary is caught in a network of plot called the Babington Plot. Her coded messages finally call for Elizabeth to be overtaken in one sentence to keep it brief. And due to that, Elizabeth's counselors felt that it had to come to an end. And she put off signing the document. And again, her own father had her mother executed. She did not want the symbolism of executing an anointed queen. But she later said she was fooled into signing the document. You know, typical Elizabeth, the politician. 
but she did have it done because she there were concerns for her own life. Mm. So whether it was right or wrong, she felt it was something that had to be done. Was Elizabeth's life genuinely threatened, do you feel like? That's a, a very good question. And there's a lot of information that says Mary was baited and that she was, these were instigated to make her, to have the outcome that Walsingham wanted to have mm-hmm. and that Cecil wanted to present to Elizabeth and say, oh, here's what Mary's done. She's she's called for an uprising. So, you know, there again, we don't know. We weren't there. And it's going to come from two different sides. So what's the advantage to having somebody else sitting on the Scottish throne? Well, the advantage was that Mary's son was brought up Protestant mm. and his counselors were Protestant. So you wouldn't have the the plotting against Elizabeth if his mother was gone. Mm. Sadly enough, supposedly James didn't grieve when his own mother was executed. Interesting. He knew that if he played his cards right, he'd be the monarch of Scotland and England, and that had never happened before. Right, because that he, Elizabeth, uh, leave since she didn't have heirs, left it to him. Right. Exactly. Mary's Mary, Queen of Scots' son. Yes. I don't so, know if you made that connection before. Okay, that's interesting. So Mary, if you want to say she got her revenge, she did. So, um, but it's just so full of political intrigue. And again, you really can't make this kind of stuff up. It's just better than any movie or even soap opera will ever see. And to think it it was happening. It was real life. Wow, that's fascinating. This podcast is sponsored by our patrons. Patrons get access to behind the scenes, regular RHP gear, bonus episodes, insights into our research, lesson plans before everybody else, and more. Brooke, read off these awesome people. Thank you to Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, and Katya. Woohoo! Do you know what is so awesome about this particular group of people? No, what? Very few of them are actually educators. These are badass people who care so much about equitable and inclusive education that they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So cool. You too can become a patron of the Remedial History Project by heading over to www.patreon.com and becoming a sponsor of the Remedial History Project for just $5 a month. That's it. That's one latte. I mean, it's it's one of something, but it's cheap. And you get all that stuff? All that stuff. You too can give up one latte for thousands of children and women. You could also buy condoms for more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you, could produ- you could produce. You could reduce reproduction <laughs> for less than that. Uh. Brooke, most importantly, instead of lamenting that women's history isn't being taught in high school or that they didn't know these women, these people are putting their money where their mouth is and they are getting it into the curriculum by funding us. It's awesome. And they believe women's stories are important. Yes. Thank you. Duh. Thanks, patrons. We love you. We do love you.
It does seem, though, despite maybe some times where Elizabeth has the wool pulled over her eyes by her advisors, that she is a pretty astute politician herself. I have heard that she, one of the things that makes her incredible is just that she brings the right people in to advise her, but maybe that's not accurate. So could you tell me a little bit about what makes her so astute as a leader? Oh, she definitely brought the the right people into the right places. There's there's no doubt about that. When you look at Frances Drake, you look at Cecil, her primary advisor, her privy council, everyone was in the right place. She promoted what we would call commoners because they were loyal to her and she knew they were the right people. So she didn't just leave it based on birth. In in a way, she was very American. She gave people a chance if they had the skills to do what she felt they needed to do. Militarily, Elizabeth is queen during a huge turning point in world history where the Spanish empire is beginning its decline, long decline, and the English empire is starting to rise. And one of probably the most significant moments in world history is the English defeat of the Spanish Armada that is sailing from Spain to take England back to Catholicism from the evil heathen Elizabeth woman leader. So I know that she's probably not like actually commanding a naval ship, but this is a huge military victory for her. Can you tell us a little bit about her role in that and and what this did for her? It's like you say, it was a real turning point in English and world history. In 1588, the Spanish Armada did set out the greatest navy in the world. They're going up against this small island nation. And it's not even the entire island. It's just simply England at that point. Elizabeth prepped her people because of her guidance. It was like a new country. She wanted to be seen in a new light, in a a new way. So she brought this freshness to them. To use a a modern-day term, it was very nationalistic. And when the winds blew the right direction and the Spanish Armada was defeated, absolutely no one in the world could believe it. So all of a sudden, Elizabeth, like you say, has made her reign into the start of an empire. Almost through like it seemingly biblical in you know divine inspiration, like like it it's natural almost what happened. Isn't that just the wildest thing? I mean, you read about it and it's like, okay, the Spanish Navy, they knew what they were doing. Why did they not know that these storms were on their way? Did they believe that you know this was just gonna be a route that they were going to go beat the English, that matter what the weather was. I'm, I'm not a naval historian, but surely they had enough experience to know that these storms were on the way. So they must have thought they had enough power to override them, mm-hmm. but it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And we have the Elizabethan age because of that. So just one of those things in history, like you say, it just changed everything. And I I don't remember the numbers, but I want to say, you know, there's hundreds of ships that leave Spain and dozens of ships that come back. I mean, just devastates the Spanish fleet Um, and kind of a fluke of nature as well as like military acumen. 
So, so incredible. I think when I think of the Elizabethan era, I think of Shakespeare, I think of her investment in the arts and, and culture and um, things like that. Why um, do you feel like her, why do you feel like her legacy endures? The optimism, the sheer optimism she brought to her people. They were unified. They felt like they were, they had an identity now. They had made an impact on history. They were powerful. And of course, when people have food and money, they're they're happy. I mean, that's human nature, whether you're in England, Spain, America. So all of a sudden, the English had everything in the world going for them, quite literally. It was all because of, of their queen. In U.S. history, Elizabeth, I feel like, should be a starting point for U.S. history. And I know from our previous conversation, you agree. So can you explain why she's so important to American history specifically? Thanks for asking that question. In 1585, Sir Walter Raleigh started a small colony that he named after Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. He named the colony Virginia. And that is our state of Virginia today. So our roots as a country start with the reign of Elizabeth I of England. And I think that's a discussion for another day, just the influence she had even on our own country, not only England and Great Britain, but America as well. And to think that it was a female, it it makes it even better. Yeah, who funded and endorsed and pushed for these expeditions. Absolutely. So cool. Typically in a middle high school course, history is taught. It's a survey class. The Elizabethan era is a lifetime. (laughs) And yet sometimes, you know, depending on the course and the teacher, you might cover the Elizabethan era in a single class period. And so I'm curious where you think Queen Elizabeth goes in a survey course in a, in a high school. And what do you think is essential that, that teachers convey to students? The sheer power she wielded. She had her, there was a monarch, then the Privy Council, and then Parliament. And she held sway over everything. Of course, she was the monarch. But they still had their input But she had such political acumen that she was easy. She could easily persuade them to do what she wanted or get the right people in place again that would say, we need to do this instead. So she was smart enough to know the direction she wanted to take. Like today, if you have a female CEO that comes in and says, well, let's let's try this. So that's kind of Elizabeth's legacy. She she gave us an example before we had examples of what women could do. So powerful. I was speaking with another historian about another female monarch in history. And one of the things she was saying that I thought was fascinating is that democracy, while I'm a big fan of it, (laughs) um, democracy actually limited female leadership opportunities and monarchies. There was, you know, despite, you know, the sexism of like, if you have an older brother, you can't, you know, be queen or whatever, or if you have a brother, period, you know, the there still was a path to leadership for women. And nobody doubted, I mean, they might not have liked having female leaders, that's a whole different issue, but they didn't doubt that Elizabeth did have a path to the throne, right? 
um, she did. There's a line of succession. It's built into law. And, and I just thought that was a kind of an interesting concept that when we started electing officials and we made our electorate entirely male and the leadership positions were designed for men, it actually, you know, I'm pro-democracy, but democracy cut out women in the process. I think that's just a fascinating, fascinating concept. But I do think that biases, biases our government, our instruction about government, our instruction about female leadership, because it it makes people think that women never led. And it's like, no, there was lots of female leadership in time. And democracies just needed a little bit of time to figure out how to include female leaders, right? Like, and she's just such a fascinating example of a powerful woman who came to the throne legitimately, although there was lots of bloodshed in the process, um, <laughs> but legitimately came to the throne. And, you know, I think we do students a disservice to not explain to them that, that those paths did exist prior to democracies and that women were skilled, that eras were named after them, that they thrived, you know? Exactly. Elizabeth, Victoria, they have ages named after them. And that was even before women could vote or pretty much on property. So there's a lot to be said. Apparently, there's over an hour to be said about it. So um, she's an incredible role model for us today. Well, Deb, I am so incredibly grateful to you for coming on the podcast informing me about this incredible woman who I feel like I've learned a lot from you and I'm just so grateful for your time. I really want to encourage our listeners to head over and check out your blog, become part of your Facebook group and join the community there. It's a thriving community. Would you mind telling everybody a little bit about everything Tudor, all things Tudor? It's If you just go to Facebook and in your search, put in all things Tudor, you'll pull up the group. You'll have to answer a couple of questions, but we have almost 20,000 people that love Tudor history. And we do often tie it into things happening today, how it influenced arts, it influenced, like you say, women. When women didn't have anything for hundreds of years, we can look at these queens from the Tudor era and what they taught us. Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not quite as active because the Facebook group keeps me fairly busy. We'll say that's like a full-time job, but it's a lot of fun. So um, yeah, drop by and say hi and join, join in because there's always something going on in there. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This has been great. And I love what you're doing. And I wish you all the success in the world with it. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.